Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are talking with Nick Timothy, Conservative strategist, former Chief of Staff to Theresa May, and we are talking about what comes next for Boris Johnson's government. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Nick, maybe we should start just with the, I suppose, obvious question. Boris Johnson's had a difficult year. We've all had a difficult year. There have been some moments where his leadership looked like it was not exactly under threat, but wobbly, at least. We're now in the vaccine phase of his leadership. Does that mean he is secure in your mind? Do you think that that period of people being on manoeuvres is over? Well, I think he's secure, and actually you'll probably always was secure. While there are obviously some grumblings about elements of his leadership, I don't really think the party was ever really in the mood to overthrow the guy who won them the 80-seat majority and who they feel could probably win a majority again next time round. You know, administratively speaking, the government looks a lot more stable at the moment, both in terms of the nature of the decision-making and the way it presents itself, but actually in terms of the substance. And I think it was Tom McTague writing in The Atlantic recently who said, I think citing psychologists like Daniel Kahneman, said that what people remember are the highs and lows and endings of stories. And if the government can end on a high note through the vaccine rollout and mass daily testing working, then it might be that people don't really remember a lot of the setbacks along the way. Yeah, it's that version of the argument that restaurateurs should concentrate on pudding because that's what people remember when the meal is over. (laughs) Before I ask Helen to come in, there was a focus clearly on his relationship with Rishi Sunak. And again, I'm sure it was overblown, some of the idea that Sunak was being positioned to replace him. But we've got a budget coming up, and there clearly are some philosophical or at least political differences between them, particularly in relation to how urgently the question of taxation and paying for the last year needs to be addressed. In your mind, is that a real divide or is it slightly confected? Well, if you talk to Rishi, Boris, or the people around them, the idea that there's a really serious problem between them is not true. However, I think there's always an institutional friction between numbers 10 and 11. And I think there probably are differences of perhaps ideology, but certainly sort of emotion and character. Boris likes to liken himself to Churchill, and some people have tried to liken him to other prime ministers. The prime minister I keep thinking of when I think of Boris and Rishi is Harold Macmillan, who burned three chancellors quite quickly because he was always afraid of the economy doing anything other than running on hot. I think Boris is a little bit similar. He's not going to want to be a you know an austerity prime minister. I don't think he's the kind of prime minister who really wants to confront really difficult long-term problems unless they happen to be the kind of problems that might be fixed by spending investing now and building things. And I think there'll be some differences of emphasis as Rishi, I think, is concerned to get the economy moving again as we hopefully come out of the cycle of lockdowns. But he's also keen to signal to the markets that there is a sense of fiscal responsibility in the government. And I think he's also conscious of the next election where he will want to create a kind of fiscal dividing line with Labour, which if 
any kind of fiscal correction gets delayed will be harder to do. But as I say, I think I don't think there's very much in Boris's makeup that suggests he's likely to be anything like an austerity prime minister. And I think while there will be some difficult decisions taken, tax rises in the medium term are inevitable. There will be spending restraints on day-to-day spending in departments, I would think. There will be this difference of, of emphasis, at least, between the two of them. Helen, do you want to? I think on the issue of Boris's position within the party, in retrospect, what was striking was how much criticism there was of somebody who, as Nick said, had only at the end of the previous year won six months previously won a handsome majority for the Conservatives in the general election. And I think that came about in part because of the issues to do with Johnson's health and the fact that he just didn't seem very well when he came back in the summer. It also came about, obviously, because of Cummings' position and the criticisms around that. And it does seem that since Cummings is gone from number 10, that outward presentation seems to be put on a a sure footing, whatever the consequences in terms of strategic judgment might be of Cummings' exit. The difficulty that Johnson's leadership still poses for the party doesn't mean that there's any chance that there will be moves against him because of this is the Scotland issue, because he is the number one problem the union faces in Scotland because he is so deeply unpopular. And I think when all those sort of headwinds ran into each other in in the summer, you saw really an astonishing amount of criticism looked at from any kind of historical perspective for a Prime Minister that was six months in after such a easy, or sizable anyway, general election win. I think in terms of the Johnson-Sunak conflict, I think the interesting thing there in a way is really the way things have gone over the, certainly since April, May, once the financial market stabilised again, is they've really gone Johnson's way rather than Sunak's way. I think the idea that the Conservatives are going to either want to or be able to fight a general election around fiscal divides that the Conservatives are the party of fiscal responsibility and Labour gets presented as a party of fiscal factlessness. It just isn't going to work. It isn't going to work because Starmer's not going to put Labour into that position and it's not going to work because essentially what we've seen through this crisis is that the central banks can essentially provide what is going to be not completely endless but for the short to medium term, an endless supply of monetary support for government. So without financial market pressure, which at the moment doesn't look like it's going to be forthcoming, it's pretty difficult to see how Sunak's going to win an argument that what needs to happen is some more fiscal probity just to show that Labour couldn't be trusted in office. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, I think my personal view is that not only is there's a fiscal reality after the pandemic and the lockdowns, a factor, but actually so too are the sort of long-term trends that we've been facing for a while anyway, like the changing demographics of society, the old age dependency ratio, what that means for welfare budgets, health and social care budgets, and the relatively smaller number of taxpayers, of workers who are already quite hard-pressed anyway, worrying about getting onto the property ladder, bringing up their families, saving for a pension of their own. And I think in reality, Britain is probably going to have to at least have a debate about moving towards probably more European levels of tax and spend. And certainly with the Tories' new electoral coalition, which is more provincial, uh, more insecure economically, a lot of those voters don't necessarily want freedom from the state, they want the security provided by the state. And so while the personal beliefs and instincts of lots of Tory MPs does not push them towards higher spending and and in the end, higher taxation. 
political reality might push them in that direction anyway. And as Helen said, coming out of you know, a thumping general election victory, Johnson came under a surprising amount of pressure. Obviously, the last year has been unique in various ways. But some of that pressure seemed to be shaped by the electoral coalition that he had created to win, and particularly pressure coming from some of the new newer MPs or new MPs from seats that didn't traditionally vote Conservative. How well do you think the party is doing at holding that coalition together? In a way, there are two sides to that question, because there's the coalition in the country, and then there's the coalition in Parliament. And part of my question is, are they different? Yeah, I think there's quite a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think they are different in that some of the MPs elected in Red Wall constituencies are not necessarily the kind of pragmatic Conservatives who welcome the role of the state or perhaps communitarian Conservatives, if I can call them that. Some of them are actually still fairly sort of ideologically small state, low tax, low spend Conservatives. And I think, especially if they wear their ideologies on their sleeves, I think they may find life a bit short-lived as Red Wall MPs. Some of them, however, are not like that at all, and I think do reflect the constituencies in terms of the way they think and what they believe in. One of the interesting things of the last 10 years or so is that these changes in the politics of the Tory party, in the electoral coalitions of the two parties, to some extent, the changes have been hastened by the decisions by politicians and political strategists. But actually, to a large degree, these things are happening fairly organically. And I think the party will be pushed into these directions more than a lot of them anticipate. And I think that I would also say about Boris, I mean, the, one of the things I heard recently, you know, a minister said to me recently, the challenge with Boris is he's a unique political talent and a brilliant campaigner and communicator, but he's not a great administrator. And I think a lot of the chuntering about Boris actually reflects, for some Tory MPs at least, almost a kind of guilt that they took the decision that they did in making him the leader and the prime minister. I mean, I actually think it was the right decision to make him the leader and prime minister, and, and I wouldn't overreact this point, but I do think that is a that is a feeling of, that exists among certain Tory MPs. Yeah, I think that one way of looking at this might be to say that the Conservatives have been, as a party, the parliamentary party, pushed to a place that would, I think, have seemed pretty inconceivable a decade ago when they took power in 2010 with the Liberal Democrats of having got a relatively small percentage of the vote for a party that won the largest number of seats. If you think about what Cameron's Conservative Party was about when he first became leader and then became Prime Minister, he thought about it in terms of what he saw as modernisation of the party, and that meant leaving too much talk about the European Union behind. In some sense, it made making the Conservatives a more middle-class liberal party trying to take votes back from the Liberal Democrats on that side of the Liberal Democratic coalition. In terms of its approach to the world, the strategic orientation was very much in the direction of China, the whole golden era business that Cameron and Osborne were keen on. What you can see since is the Conservative Party has been yanked in a completely different direction. It's had to go down the road of embracing leaving the European Union It's now gone back to having significantly more working class voters, the kinds of voters who were part of the Conservative Voting Coalition during the Thatcher years, but weren't so much part of it in 2010. And it's had to ditch the whole orientation towards China and it's got to come up with 
essentially a new geopolitical position for Britain in a world that's incredibly different geopolitically in many ways than it was in in 2010. And the Conservative Party has been pushed that way by events as much as by any strategic direction, including, I would say, in relation to that, Johnson himself. So I think that the idea that the ideological conflicts within the Conservative Party, including any that might exist between Sunak and Johnson, are going to determine the direction of travel rather than the continuing unfolding of events is unlikely. So Nick, I mean, in a way, you're sort of saying the same thing, you and Helen, but putting it slightly differently, you called it organic. And the way Helen just described it, you know, there was a sort of yanking of the party. It's it's more dramatic than that. And after all, you've seen a lot of this from the inside. Did it feel organic or did it feel like at certain points the party was being yanked? <laughs> Maybe I can introduce a third kind of language about it. I think certainly when I was in Downing Street, we knew all of these changes were underway. And in fact, I mean, i I'd been arguing for some time that there was a great opportunity in this. I mean, I've always wanted the Tory party to be more cross-class and regionally balanced. And and I think there's a great opportunity for the Tory party to be able to represent the whole country with the kind of politics that these changes are helping to bring about. But at the same time, certainly when I was in Downing Street, I thought of it as riding a tiger because it's very dangerous. As realignment takes place, there's an opportunity in terms of being able to talk to new voters and win their support. But there's obviously also a corresponding danger, which is you might be losing some of your more traditional support. And, and you know, I think one of the big mistakes we made in that period and in the 2017 election was we underestimated the extent to which we might be in danger of losing certain votes or the extent to which there was an opportunity for the other side also to win support that hadn't been with them for a while. So I think it's, (laughs) somehow it is both organic and a bit of a yanking. The reason it's organic is because these changes are social. They're caused by changes in the economy, changes in technology, demographic changes. But to me, the kind of the yanking really is caused by the electorate forcing the parties to to change accordingly. You know, there is a big opportunity for the Tory party in all of this, yet lots of Tories don't really like it very much. They're much more comfortable representing prosperous southern constituencies. The new constituencies that are part of the the Tory alliance bring challenges that lots of Tory MPs would rather not confront. And then back to riding the tiger, you know, the Tory position in electoral terms looks very strong right now. You know, it's an 80-seat majority. You'd normally think that that would be impregnable. And while Labour have huge challenges of their own, which I think will make Keir Starmer's life very difficult, the Tory party actually now has, is now exposed on two flanks. It's got seats across the Red Wall where they've won, you know, once or maybe twice. And the feeling is that lots of voters have lent their votes, partly with Brexit in mind. But a lot of the seats that they've relied on over the last 10 years or so in the South have become much more marginal. So they're going to have to work out a strategy next time round that enables them to successfully defend on both flanks. I think that that's true. And I would only add that there's clearly still an opportunity if the flank in the the southeastern seats in particular can be defended to increase the majority next time. And I'm just leaving the Scottish question aside from that for the moment because of the the number of seats now that Labour has to defend in what gets called the behind the red wall with very small majorities. So 
the ability of the Conservatives, I think, to expand their coalition is not actually over. And the question then becomes how skillfully Labour under Keir Starmer can simultaneously play attack and defence in England whilst trying to resurrect its position in Scotland. And I would say that that's actually pretty difficult from Labour's point of view as things stand at the moment. So there is a way of looking at it and which would say the balance of probabilities lies with the Conservatives widening the coalition further rather than it narrowing. And I, I began by saying that we're in the vaccine phase of this period of politics and Keir Starmer has apparently said behind the scenes, but it's also in the papers that he always thought his leadership would come under pressure once we got to this part of the pandemic, once the government was being able to tell a success story. But you both suggested that Keir Starmer is facing much more profound challenges than that. Do you think, Nick, do you think actually the last few weeks where there has been a shift and the party leader who was under pressure, Johnson, seems to be under less pressure, but Starmer is under more pressure. Do you think that's not just a temporary shift? That is actually part of the structure of what's going to happen in British politics over the remainder of this parliament? Yeah, I mean, partly this is the fact of opposition politics, which to armchair strategists looks very easy, but in reality is really very difficult. Starmer has obviously brought a sense of competence and fluency and moderation to the Labour Party, but he still faces quite a serious structural problem. Labour are in serious trouble in Scotland. I mean, they're kind of nowhere in Scotland. And one of the reasons they lost the Red Wall is about the realignment we've been talking about, which in many ways is driven by the increasing importance of cultural issues in our politics. Now, his strategy has been to try to keep quiet on cultural issues and hope that in the end, by focusing on economic issues, he'll be able to reunite much of the old Labour electoral coalition. You know, I think it's it's obviously true to say that it is probably easier to unite Islington with Workington by talking about economic justice than it is by talking about transgender rights and patriotism, you know, different cultural issues like those. But I think the cultural issue isn't really going away. And certainly the Tory party will want to make sure that there is a kind of choice on questions of identity as much as on the economy when the next election comes around. So I think he's struggling for all of those reasons. But I think he's also struggling for a more obvious one, which is the pandemic. And while the government has obviously made mistakes along the way in handling the pandemic. It seems that public opinion, to some extent, has been reasonably forgiving of that, understanding that this is an unprecedented crisis and so on. But in a way, because the pandemic is all-consuming in terms of news cycles and so on, he hasn't really been able to cut through in, in any meaningful sense. He hasn't really been able to show hugely dramatic changes to his party. He has actually done things to the Labour Party, but I'm not sure the extent to which the public is really paying attention to internal Labour Party politics while all this is going on. He hasn't really been able to talk about many other subjects because the country's whole focus has been on this. And I remember thinking when he was elected that it was a little bit like when Ian Duncan Smith was elected leader of the opposition in 2001. He was due to be announced as leader of the party, I think, on either on the 11th or 12th of September, in, you know, pretty much as the attacks on New York took place. And you might argue there are lots of reasons why Ian's leadership didn't work in the end, but he never really managed to speak to the country, partly because the news cycle was just so dominated in those early stages. 
by a huge issue. And I think Starmer has had a similar challenge himself with the pandemic. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And Helen Starmer faces a problem in Scotland, and you said that part of Johnson's period of sort of relative weakness was the recognition, which is fairly non-controversial, that he has a problem cutting through in Scotland. Which of them faces the biggest challenge in relation to Scotland, do you think? I think it obviously depends how you're looking at this problem. If you're looking at it in terms of the the future of the union and the future of the Anglo-Scottish union, I, I should say, then Johnson is the problem and has the biggest problem. It could be with caveats about the internal conflicts in the SNP at the moment that there are very difficult decisions coming for him after the Hollywood elections. I think, though, that if we look at it in terms of electoral politics and outcomes at Westminster, then Starmer's really the one with the, the biggest problem here. And I think actually that the pandemic has made it worse because what we've seen clearly during the pandemic is that there has to be English executive government under crisis conditions. And it happens to be the case that this pandemic has not only obviously propelled health to the centre of the political stage, but education too. These are devolved matters. So the Westminster government ends up having to act as the English government because there is no one else can. So it's not only the case that Labour goes into the next election having to deal with the old West Lothian question in relation to legislation through Parliament and how it's going to deal with English votes for English laws if it doesn't have an English majority. It now has to go into the next election with the possibility that if it's at all dependent upon SNP votes to sustain itself in office, then in any future crisis of this kind, that government that wouldn't have an English majority would have to act as the English government. And so that's another level of difficulty that that hasn't been there before. And really for Starmer to find some way out of all this is it either that Labour has to recover in Scotland and I don't think it's difficult to see how the SNP's internal conflicts might lead to some fallen support for the SNP but that doesn't mean that Labour would necessarily be the the beneficiary of it rather than the Conservatives and the alternative is that the Liberal Democrats need to take votes away from the Conservatives and take seats away from the Conservatives actually not votes away from the Conservatives so that the Liberal Democrats become a better prospect as a coalition or supply and confidence partner, and that's not happening at the the moment. So I think all these questions to do with the union are now actually incredibly difficult for Labour. And Nick, inside the Conservative Party, how much unease is there that, of course, the union in some deep sense is at risk, and it has been for a while, but post-pandemic, post-Brexit, with what's going on in Northern Ireland, and the possibility that Northern Irish politics could flare up, not in the what you might call traditional way, but in a new kind of way, whether around trade or around the economy. A sense that Johnson, for all, as we've talked about, his relative strengths, if you look at this over the medium term, he could be the man who lost the union. And for many Conservatives, that must give them pause. 
Yeah, I mean, the politics of the union are hugely important right now. And I mean, I agree with Helen's characterization of what those politics mean for future elections. If you talk to lots of Tory MPs and ministers and advisors, the conversation comes around to the union really quite quickly because everyone is quite concerned by it. And it is true that Boris is particularly unpopular there. I think it was Chris Dillon in the New Statesman said he was a prime minister hand-knit to repel Scots, <laughs> which I think the, uh, the polling and research says is true. That's about as far as you can go in terms of talking about Tory attitudes before you get into lots of disagreement and complexity, because I think instinctively lots of Tory MPs just really dislike devolution. You know, I think they're right to criticise it. I think it's completely destroyed the balance of the constitution. It's created a power base for the Scots now to basically use the power of the Scottish state to campaign permanently for independence, including bullying anybody who might disagree with them along the way. And it throws up the kind of electoral predicaments that Helen just described. But of course, it's fantasy politics to say that you could go back to the Westminster model of simple government from London. But I don't think most MPs at the moment have a sort of preferred way out of the mess. I mean, I've written about the case for a federal UK, including an English parliament and an English government, but basically reserving the things that must absolutely be done together for a Westminster UK government and everything else being left to the four national governments. There are some Tory MPs who are quite sympathetic to that argument, but most of them, I think at the moment, dislike it. It's too radical. Some worry that it would cause friction between a First Minister of England and a UK Prime Minister, something that it might actually just lead to a faster unravelling of the union. But I think what's really striking is that while everyone's really worried about the union and can see that there's a big problem, there isn't really anything coming close to a solution emerging. And a question for both of you in a way, does Northern Ireland have the possibility to be the destabilising factor here? I mean, Northern Ireland could become a big part of UK politics again over the course of this parliament. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that actually in terms of urgency in the way in which the the situation's developed both in Northern Ireland and Scotland since the the beginning of the year that Northern Ireland has now moved really to the the centre of the problem very quickly because of the Northern Ireland protocol and the serious political pressure that that is now under. And I think it does pose political problems for Johnson because it's very easy to portray him as someone who's betrayed the unionists, particularly after he seemed to give some quite personal promises when he went to the, the Democratic Unionist Conference, I think it was, And it's very difficult to find a way out that doesn't involve making quite difficult judgments about how to deal with the EU more generally. So this is a problem for, I think, the Conservatives in terms of trust in relation to Northern Ireland. It's a problem of the union itself and it's a problem of the UK's and Britain's within the UK's relations with the European Union. And again, there's no easy way out of this and certainly not one I think that which significant numbers of people within Britain, within Northern Ireland, within Ireland and within the EU can all agree on. So it is going to be, I think, bitterly politically contested over the next months. Nick, do you pick up on that when you talk to ministers? Is there a growing sense of unease about what might be coming down the road from Northern Ireland for UK politics? 
Yeah, I think so. I think for quite a long time, everyone has grown complacent about Northern Irish politics and assumed that peace is permanent and some of the old issues no longer apply. But I think actually London, to some extent, has shown for some years now either a lack of interest or a lack of understanding in Northern Ireland. And certainly, I would say the European Union, through the negotiations, showed very little understanding of the realities of Northern Ireland. And one of the things that has been claimed for quite some time is that while everyone has worried quite a lot about what nationalist sentiment in Northern Ireland might be, they've forgotten that <laughs> that there's a unionist community too, who are now understandably very upset with the government and with the European Union. And all of Northern Ireland is concerned about the protocol and the way in which it might work. It feels to me that what happened in the latter stages of the negotiation with the EU was that the government decided that it needed to get Brexit done and it could worry about the protocol later. We'll soon find out whether it was feasible to imagine that they might be able to worry about and change perhaps the protocol later. I mean, the treaty allows for a consent mechanism from Northern Ireland where the Assembly would give its consent regularly on the continuation of the protocol, which will be, you know, as moments like those approach, that will make the issue even hotter. But in the meantime, the government is clearly trying to negotiate changes to the way in which the protocol is working in practice, at least if not in the text itself. But it feels quite likely that Northern Ireland will become a pretty significant issue in the coming years. Now, what that means in a broader sense, I don't think we know yet. I mean, I think certainly when I was growing up, Northern Ireland was a huge part of British politics. It was a, it was a live security issue that was relevant to the day-to-day of Westminster politics. It hasn't been like that for some time. And, and it feels like English voters, when asked about Northern Ireland, show relatively little interest in it. What it means for the politics of Scotland, I think it complicates the question even further, because this is a reminder of how complex the reality of seceding from the Union would be in terms of creating you know, a border with the rest of the UK and so on. So I think it is definitely going to become a bigger and bigger issue. How that plays out, I think, is anyone's guess right now. Finally, to pick up on something that Helen talked about earlier, when we were talking about the shift from the Cameron-Osborne years to the Johnson years via the May years, some of it's organic, some of it is more dramatic. Perhaps the most dramatic aspect of it concerns China, given Cameron and Osborne's rhetoric and the reality about wanting to deepen relations with China. And now both the government but also public opinion seem to have moved dramatically. So even today there's polling evidence and it's not clear whether this is because the public have picked up on something coming from on top or it's bubbling up from below. But deep unease about China and the wider questions of China's potential dominance in the 21st century. That's not organic, presumably, that shift. I mean, China's rise is organic. But the Conservative Party's move, and this then connects to what might be future relationships with the Biden administration. But how substantive is that shift? Is it just pragmatic? Or does this also reflect a kind of philosophical difference from the Cameron years to now? Well, the shift is pretty total, I think. I mean, the policy in the days of David and George was, uh, well, incredibly open. In my view, as somebody who was working in the Home Office at that point, 
and dealing with national security issues and seeing intelligence reports and so on, I thought it was an incredibly naive policy because it was quite apparent then what China wanted to do in terms of setting debt traps for third countries, for trying to gain leverage over the UK by making us so dependent on Chinese investment that we would take China's side inside international institutions and that we would turn a blind eye while China stole all sorts of industrial secrets from British-based businesses. So I think the policy was horrifically naive back then. I don't think it's necessarily in keeping with a, a sort of philosophical shift as the party has gone from Cameron to May to Johnson. I think it's, to be honest, more to do with the world kind of catching up with reality and events. So the way China has conducted itself since the emergence of the virus, you know, in the immediate sense of refusing to share information and to engage properly with the World Health Organization, the campaign of misinformation, the, the claims of its diplomats that actually the virus started in America, the fact that it has used this period of global distraction to crush Hong Kong or quite openly break the treaty with the UK on Hong Kong, that the world is learning more about what it's doing to the Uyghurs, which the Americans call a genocide, to its threats to Taiwan and what it's continuing to do in the South China Sea. I think basically you know, it's all adding up, but it's much more visible. And the, the accumulation of power for China has actually increased since the virus emerged, partly because for a period, understandably enough, lots of countries in the world saw the way authoritarian regimes, including China, were coping with it and compared it to the democracies. And, you know, it seems to be part of a pattern where where actually democracy is messy and difficult to get things done. And, and some of these more authoritarian regimes seem to offer an attractive alternative. So, so I think everything is just really sped up. And I think it's, I think it's a case of public opinion and political opinion kind of catching up with this and realising that there is danger in the future unless we start to defend ourselves a little bit more by creating new alliances and by not leaving ourselves quite so exposed to trade with one particular country that happens to have a hostile government. So more home-produced goods, uh, more diverse supply chains, etc., the thing that's most striking about the Cameron and Osborne naivety is the idea that Hong Kong at some point wasn't going to become a, a really difficult question, given that the existing position of Hong Kong was written into the 1997 agreement was only for 50 years. So the nearer the end of the 50 years came, then the question of how Britain was going to deal with what was almost certainly going to be China moving to greater control over Hong Kong was going to come into play. I think there's still difficulties for the Conservatives around the issue, partly because Britain still does a significant amount of trade with China, both importing and exporting. So if the government's position is to move away from that at the same time as trade with the European Union has become more difficult, I think that's quite an awkward position for the parliamentary party that still sort of wants to focus on economic growth issues, if we just want to simplify that. And it clearly really complicates questions with the European Union. I think it's made 
the start of the relations with the Biden administration easier than it would otherwise be because Britain and the US are more aligned on the China question. But the Johnson government still has really to sort out what geopolitical security relationship with the European Union is going to be. It was left out of the negotiations about the trade agreement. And now we have a really quite deep divide, I think, between the position that's materialised in Britain, in part by sort of a series of events rather than deliberate decision, and the direction of travel led by Germany, in particular in the European Union, that's manifested in the investment agreement reached at the the end of the last year. So there's quite a lot of the difficult issues, I'd say, you know, ranging strangely from like Northern Ireland to China, that all have got bound up in like how the UK is going to sort out its EU relationship. So maybe Nick, as our last question, do you want to give us an answer? How is Britain going to sort out its EU relationship, particularly on questions of security? One of the things that is already clear is that the negotiations didn't end with the completion of the trade agreement. You know, we're already effectively negotiating again when it comes to the operation of the protocol. There's going to be lots of pressure to, you know, refine elements of the relationship, certainly on when it comes to things like the export of shellfish and other kind of food products. It will be a matter of, I think, live politics here that, you know, people will be calling for changes to the agreement to smooth out bumps that emerge as as we get used to this new relationship. And I think we should break up security and foreign policy, because I think they're two slightly different things. So on, on foreign policy, we're already seeing Britain operate much more visibly with other allies and without the EU. So on China in particular, it's been with Australia, Canada, the United States, at the G7, which Britain is hosting in June. We've also invited India, South Korea and Australia. I think that is indicative of the fact that I think our foreign policy is going to feel probably less European, or maybe I should say sort of beyond European. And there will be a sort of tilt towards the Pacific, which is going to be an increasingly important region throughout the rest of this century. And we will obviously seek to do things in partnership with European allies, but it will be on a kind of almost case-by-case basis, I would think. You could imagine there being bilateral cooperation with France in particular on certain issues in, in Africa and parts of the Middle East, perhaps. And then on security, there's a couple of different aspects to this. One is the sort of sharing of information, which actually the European Union facilitated through things like passenger name records and so on, which you could imagine future treaties supplementing what we have with the European Union right now, where we might do better at sharing information. But then there's the kind of cooperation that takes place sort of almost outside the scope of treaties and also partly away from the site of watching publics and medias which I think will inevitably will have to continue and may to some extent deepen based on the ongoing threats that we will face, whether that's terrorism or whether it's things like espionage and industrial espionage from China. If you'd like to read more by Nick Timothy, his book is Remaking One Nation, The Future of Conservatism, and he also has a regular column in the Daily Telegraph. Next week, we're going to be talking to Suzanne Hayward about her late husband, Jeremy Hayward, who might just be the most important person in British politics that you've never heard of. 
There's a new episode of History of Ideas available now. It's Frederick Douglass on slavery. Just subscribe to History of Ideas and you will get it. And as you'll have heard at the start of this podcast, you can now get Talking Politics without adverts interrupting in the middle. It's very simple. If you just click on the link wherever you get Talking Politics, you will see what you need to do. And in a couple of weeks, the next in our series on the Union, looking specifically at the question of Northern Ireland. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.